Hello and welcome to Marxism Today. I'm Red Wagner, and I'm joined by Tony. Hi. Tony, first things first, did you see that some people are following us on the subreddit? Why, indeed I did. Yes, and I realized that when we introduced the subreddit last time, that we didn't really explain exactly what it was. If you're unfamiliar with Reddit, it's basically a series of discussion forums. You can post interesting things and discuss them. And so if you would like to discuss this show or share things with us and our listeners, you can do so by going to our subreddit. It is reddit.com slash r slash Marxism today, all one word. And including followers, we've also received some comments uh, we had a helpful comment about all sorts of stuff about Amazon that goes above and beyond our discussion. And we're going to put together some links. Hopefully we've already done this by the time that you're listening to this. But at the time of me recording it, we have not put together the links. But by now, meaning when you're listening to it, hopefully we have some links available for you on our WordPress site and also linked on the subreddit where you can follow up on additional reading for Amazon if you liked our Amazon episode and want to find out more about how Amazon functions as an excellent example of the best and worst of capitalism. Okay, let's get started with the episode. Hello and welcome to Marxism Today. I'm Red Wagner. I am joined by... Tony Schmidt. And Thad. And uh, as you know, uh, Tony and I are here as your Marxist hosts, and Thad is here as our not necessarily Marxist, but sympathetic to ideas of Marxism and socialism guest. Open-minded layman, let's say. Representative of that, I hope. I'm trying to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And today we have recently read State and Revolution by Lenin, and our topic... (laughs) (laughs) So <laughs> what? We better edit that little laugh. What What's happened? our first topic? <laughs> Someone tickled red. <laughs> it was adorable. <laughs> mentioned prior to taping this um which red said could give us a good platform to to start from is that what was really interesting for me was hearing um how lenin talked about how marx talked about the withering away of the state and and lenin um the context was in a critique of people misinterpreting that or misrepresenting it depending on their motivation um but basically, from an outsider perspective, that was interesting to me because a lot of times um, I think it's mi- socialism is misconstrued as something um, that can either happen very slowly and naturally, we all just kind of agree on it, or it's identified as this harsh revolution where everything has to change in a very unnatural, scary way. Um, and, and his uh, comments on withering away made it feel very organic to me. He did talk about there needed to be a very strong upheaval to change things to, to, and he was specifically talking about like the bourgeoisie, the, the state was supporting them. And we'll, we'll talk about how he defined the state too. I know you want to do that. Yeah. But then he also, uh, but then he talks, so there did need to be a revolution to change that 
uh, very immediately and maybe violently. Um, and then it's run by the proletariat. But then his explanation of that the withering away part of things was a, a natural progression that it's not like oh we need to ab- decide what to abolish this year from the government no it, it is we don't need this anymore because we're running it together like it organically just evaporates in a way very elegantly and I, and that made it seem more like a scientific natural process that people working together to create and that was uh good for me to read at least I think, the, and and you mentioned this, I think I'm going to go straight there because I think this needs to be one of the first things that we talk about when we talk about state and revolution. And that is the definition of the state for, for Lenin's work in this entire book. And that's that uh, Lenin and Marx uh, define the state as a organized system of force to maintain a class system. And so when when it came to what then constitutes the state, it is an armed police force or an armed army force that can reinforce the social structure of capitalism. That w- that would be a capitalist state or, you know, in the feudal state that was, you know, knights or whoever, it was it was the armed forces of the feudal state that could enforce the structure there so that you know serfs weren't rising up against their lords because he said capitalism specifically has inherent contradiction in its in its class division like they're constantly going to be at odds with each other so you need a force to um, give power to one over the other and in this case it's the minority a small group uh, holding power against the majority uh, and that that was very interesting like the whole mechanism of state is basically just to keep an equilibrium of a thing that does not want to be equal like does not want to be balanced because it's so off kilter mm-hmm. yeah yeah to um, to basically maintain the oppression of mm-hmm. a of a majority of the people mm-hmm. which is an interesting way of thinking of the state that i don't think we normally use in in conversation or or folks might not be used to thinking of the state in those terms or to uh, uh, defining it that way yeah in fact i i think i do want to draw that uh draw that out a little bit uh, i remember being in um a chapter of a group called sds students for a democratic society and one of the members of the chapter I was in uh, used to, one of her favorite phrases was to say that Ronald Reagan taught her that she actually does like the state because, you know, Reagan took away parts of the state that she actually supported. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, I don't know how much we want to fret over this or get into the difference, but I think that when we look at the states in modern society today, we can see things about the state that socialists support. There there are lots of things that the state does that socialists support. Social security, unemployment benefits, uh, education to a certain degree the state supports. Uh, and and these are these as well as many things are things that socialists support. So we're we're not talking about the state in in that total function. We're talking about the state as the to the extent that it is there to physically enforce the establishment capitalist system like you know if you think of i think a good way to think of it is thinking of like the civil rights movement and the protests on college campuses we have the national guard come in and the national guard physically breaking up the 
protests of the students, or Occupy Wall Street, the police coming in and forcibly evicting the people occupying Zuccotti Park, or recently with, like, Ferguson, where there's unrest and unhappiness about the state, the police and National Guard coming in and stopping that as well, or attempting to. Yeah, those we'll are... that plays out. Those are great modern-day examples of how Lenin's definition of the state still can can show up uh, and, and be readily apparent in, in modern society, that we still have a state that will step in to enforce a particular social system. Those physical demonstrations of force let the shadow, the idea of power over you pervade after like a powerful part i think of the of the state in that manner is you don't have to i've never been arrested i'm still very afraid of if i did something if i was in uh some sort of protest like that idea is still there and it's still it it could quell fires within people uh, where they want to be passionate about something Mm -hmm. it is an awkward stance where you go okay i'm going to go protest this by the way i might not want to have something planned for later because I might get arrested for simply protesting, which is something that has always legally been defined in this country as okay to do, but you still will get arrested for it a lot of the time. Yeah, or choosing not to protest because you think you might get arrested and the inconvenience of being arrested. I mean, it's great that people will still protest in the face of that, but I mean, I understand people that will choose not to because of that, right? Like, if you have a family to care for or whatever, just other responsibilities in your life, that might not be a choice that you're willing to make for yourself. And and I'm not going to particularly judge someone for that. It's wonderful if folks are willing to stand up. I mean, we need people to stand up, but we have to face the reality that that's not going to be the case for everyone. The other thing I want to interject in is I feel like I w- would have to say, I, w- I would feel sad for myself if I didn't. The Or maybe not sad, I don't know, whatever, I'd feel something. The idea that, I believe it was Louis Althusser, do you know that, Marxist? Um, I am vaguely familiar with him through the works of Zizek. Yeah, he's a, I think, French Marxist who worked later, like I think in the 60s maybe? Uh, but anyway, Althusser, his whole thing was he really worked on ideology. He was really interested in ideology. And he contrasted two different things. He said that the state has repressive apparatuses and ideological apparatuses. So you call them, you know, state repressive apparatuses and state ideological apparatuses. And the idea was the state is maintaining a system but the police and the armed forces are just one way that they maintain that system. And and as I think we reach, you know, relatively more stable societies, or may, I don't know, maybe stable is not the right word, especially with the economy as of late. But I think capitalism has realized that the ideological apparatuses are often far cheaper than the repressive apparatuses. That if people agree or submit or give up, that that is actually a lot cheaper uh, of a form of control than to actually physically repress people. You mentioned this before, and and it, it leads me to a question to ask you. You were talking about the state functioning in, in certain ways that people support, like welfare, social security, mm-hmm. and 
I think Lenin speaks to this a little bit to saying that democracy d- doesn't equal equality, depending on what you do. And it certainly does not mean um, necessarily that socialism will come about. Democracy like, can be used uh, as a mechanism to keep people um, exploited. And it sort of makes me wonder, and I think you were just speaking to this, and that's what I want to check, is that these processes, if you have people constantly fighting about welfare, social security, or, or, or health care in the country, they're probably not setting their sights on, on changing the superstructure. They're probably not setting their sights on, on removing capitalism. You give them these little tidbits, um, and, and you don't have to hit them with a billy club. Uh, but you really distract them. <laughs> well, well, and I don't even want to say that those are necessarily like, I don't, I don't know, maybe they're distractions, but I think they're worthwhile things to fight for. Sure. Like anyone out there fighting for social security or food stamps or any, anything that's going to make people's lives better. Like people depend on these things. And so it's important to fight for these things because it's going to make a difference in people's lives. And and I completely support that. Mm-hmm. I do think it's important that one of the major themes in State and Revolution that Lenin cites is, and, and Marx uh, says too, this comes from Marx through Lenin, to say that a socialist society cannot simply take control of the existing state. And, and I think that that is an important distinction that, that touches on what you were getting at there. So we can have social security and we can have unemployment benefits and we can have a bunch of things that socialists support in the current state structure. But the state structure in many ways is designed not to be the state of the people to not be the state of the working and middle classes. It is designed to be the state of of the rich and the upper class and the capitalist class. And we can see that in lots of ways. In fact, the, the extent to which it is the state of the people versus the extent of the 1% or whoever you want to call them can change. And I think recently we've seen it shift more and more to the state of the capitalist class. For example, when, when Citizens United happened that said any corporation can spend as much as it wants in any, uh, election because that counts as free speech, which, which of course is a, you know, just because you can, are free to say something doesn't necessarily mean that you're free to spend as much money on anything that you want. You know, that, by that, definition than buying crack cocaine is free speech because <laughs> because you can't stop like yeah it's ridiculous so the, the the supreme court came up with this ridiculous decision and what the effect of it is is to say politics can be controlled by an unlimited extent by money to say we're not only do you need to be rich to run for office which was always true for a long time now you really need to be rich or at the very least maybe you don't need to be super rich but you need to really show that you will represent the the interests of the very wealthy because based on the amount of funding you need to run television ads to to bust your campaign all around the place to have a really nice website to do anything to get your message out there you need the money to promote that message in today's political climate and and if you don't have the money you don't go so every step that we have that makes politics more dependent on money 
is a step to make sure that our state is a state for the wealthy class, for the capitalist class, and not for the proletariat class. It's disturbing, too, in the instance you're talking about. The example you gave where the campaign donations don't have that kind of cap anymore. Uh, because it basically was run that way before that. I mean, money money talked in that aspect. You needed to be able to pull in a lot of money um, from donors, special interest groups, and things like that. Um, and, and lobbyist support is amazingly powerful in D.C. But now, now they're flagrant about it. It's they're admitting it, and we don't have we don't have. Uh, there was I mean there of course is outcry about this, but it feels like they are. There it's not even trying to hide the fact that uh, that money buys Washington, the money buys buys laws, buys politics, and that I mean it's scary to have a government that lies to you, but when a government has the mechanism with which it is using to to corrupt the political system and it's flagrant about it, it's scary in a way too because they're confident. They don't care. Well, I think it is an indicator of the success of capitalist ideology. To convince people that that's good for them, to convince people that it, yeah, that it works. It's yeah. natural. Right, exactly. Because the number of people that are really, really upset by it the, enough to like join an organization to fight against it is so small. Although I think a majority of people, and this has been proven in a lot of places where that small minority of people have gotten like a statement on a referendum where people could actually voice their opinion. Every place, as far as I know, that they get that, that referendum on a ballot someplace, people always say, yeah, get the money out of politics. But agreeing with something is not enough. It, you need to agree with it strong enough that you'll actually do something about it. And that's, that's part of the problem because many people, when it comes to voting, they don't vote just on one issue. And so a lot, I mean, that's a problem that we see over and over again, especially with class issues, is they get pushed further and further down the issue list. And what people are voting on are things other than class issues. So class issues end up always going against the majority vote. You know, the majority of people want to raise the minimum wage. Are we going to get a raise to the minimum wage? Probably not. But it's not because people don't support it. It's because people are voting on other issues. You know, at the same, the, the, this was something in the midterm elections that came up was community after community after community all voted to raise the minimum wage, whether they were binding referendum or unbinding ones like we had here in Wisconsin. Several communities had unbinding, non-binding referenda. Which means that it doesn't make policy. It just is basically a popularity poll. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, politicians can just completely ignore it if they choose. But people voted to raise the minimum wage. They voted that that is what they believe in. But at the same time, in that very same election... So we know who was going to the polls in that very same election. A whole bunch of Republicans were elected. So that means there's a bunch of Republicans out there that all even want to raise the minimum wage, even though it's not necessarily associated with their party to do that. So you know there's a majority of people. If even if you can elect, elect Republicans and vote for to raise the minimum wage in the same election, you know it's a majority. And, and lots of polls are out there. I'm sure we could Google it and find a bunch of polls if we wanted to that uh, show that a majority of the people are for raising the minimum wage. It's not going to happen. Why? Because the people who were voting for Republicans and probably a lot of the people that were voting for Democrats didn't make that a primary issue. Instead, we'll get right to work. <laughs> and what? how do you think this connects to what Lenin was saying about this state? 
what we are we are experiencing. I mean, we, we have a state that's functioning in a lot of the ways that he's talking about. It's doing a lot of these things. Lenin's advice or takeaway from it is that the working class cannot simply seize control of the existing state, which when we look at the existing state and what an awful shape it's in with Citizens United and and all of the ways that politics is tied to money and the Electoral College and the two-party system, there are so many different pieces of our political system that are essentially designed to keep socialists or or whatever radical party out of the, out of the playing field that it makes a lot of sense now i think that some socialists may look at that and say we should ignore electoral politics altogether that we should have absolutely nothing to do with it nothing at all because nothing's ever going to change about it it's all going to be just awful and and the worst thing ever and Democrats are are equally as bad as Republicans, if not possibly even worse. And I agree that in some ways they are worse, but I think that it's not outside the realm of possibility. And this is just my own opinion. Other socialists are going to have other opinions on this. But I think to say that every politician is as equally bad as every other politician, I think that's too simplistic of an answer. I don't think that it's necessarily bad to say, well, they're both representatives of the capitalist class, but this one is a more sympathetic representative. You know, it's not a bad thing to recognize that and to to plan actions or spend effort around those differences. Now, should that be the end of your differences? Should should the widest range of your horizon be we got to vote, we got to vote a bunch of Democrats in because that's going to be better. No, absolutely not. That is, that's a severe handicap. That's what I was speaking to before about talking about welfare and other things sometimes being uh, diversions. Like that, those are very important things to support when you live, this is the world you live in. But also when you can decide that that's the end. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that is the, that is the end goal. Um, when there, there's still a lot more that can be done and a lot more to think about at the very least. Yeah. It's framing it all in a broader context, which I think a lot of, uh, left pe- people on the left have uh, trouble with because I mean, if you look at most issues like welfare or social security you can get a good coalition of left groups together to work on something like that but they only ever work on issues nobody ever wants to work towards the broader goal of you know changing the system fundamentally beyond that and I think that's a big handicap of just the left in general in the United States is that they don't keep the broader context of capitalism in their sites. It's not. It's not talked about at all. Uh, no, yeah. Mostly, I mean, we talk about it when people do talk about capitalism to describe what's going on with us. Ec- economics is telling. It's basically like the weather. Oh, these these trends are taking place, and be ready for this. And we're trying to predict the future, but we're not ever saying like we want to naturalize capitalism like it's the weather. We never are saying like. Let's get rid. Let's get rid of this cold front. We're just saying, oh, it's coming. Be ready for it. And uh, yeah, I think people need to talk about that. I'd love if people talked about it on, on the political arena more. I know that we, I've done this before, or we've done this before in the podcast, is to quote Slavoj Žižek, or maybe not directly quote him, but reference him. And so, so I'm going to uphold that tradition. There's a bit that he used to do a lot. I don't. I haven't seen him do it recently, but he would say that. 
when in the 1990s, a philosopher, I think from Japan, named Francis Fukuyama, came around and said, we have reached the end of history. That's his quote, and and people on the left make fun of him for it, because it, it basically was a comment on the fall of the Soviet Union, to yeah. say, we thought this was going to be the next step, but turns out they didn't make a next step, and now they're capitalists, so clearly capitalism is the social system, that mm-hmm. like there is no next social system. Pretty defeatist. This yeah. is it. And well, I, yeah, I mean, you could call it defeatist. I don't know. He might have been happy about it. Yeah, he might have been oh. pro-capitalist. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't read enough Fukuyama to know, or any of it. He um, could have been exuberant. Yeah, he, yes. Like woo. But Zizek's point is that he, and what he will always say is that even the people who call themselves leftists are essentially Fukuyamaists. That they. Mm, okay. very rarely take the perspective that there might be something past capitalism. They're almost always trying to make the world in capitalism nicer for the working class. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say uh, uh, this connects to something that I thought about when, when reading this that surprised me and was eye-opening for me. Reading about Lenin talking at that time, uh, I think the first thing I'll say is that it was interesting for me to see a time period where socialism was more part of the public discourse. People were talking about uh, a revolution and, and like it, because it, it was happening it was taking place. We, we have this uh, wonderful, comfortable distance from revolution here in America where we're very rich and, and we're very uh, complacent and it's easy for us to forget about the hardship that, that people have gone through or, and, and it's, it's nice not to think about the hardship we might have to go through if we were to make some sort of change. But he was living in it at the time. That mindset was interesting for me to appreciate because obviously you'd be passionate about this too and, and you, you just have a different frame of reference. And that e- even then, at that time in Lenin's life, he was already complaining about people doing this. They, t- the, the liberals um, watering down socialism or, or, or having this sort of resigned attitude that, oh, we didn't make it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll settle for this. He, he was doing this what, 150 years ago. Like, yep. th- that is, this is not new and it is established now. Like, it's probably perfected at this point, but it, it wasn't. It's, it's not new. Yeah. That was that was eye opening to me. It, it actually it is amazing how many things that you can read in State and Revolution and say, "Wow, this feels like something that just happened last week." Mm-hmm. Like there, out there in a later episode, I'll have another one that reminds me of a recent movie. But yeah, there's lots of things that that pop out in the book where you say. I can't believe that this thing is almost a hundred years old. At once, it makes you feel more connected to history. Like these problems are problems they had, um, and then in, an, in another way, it makes you feel like Lenin is very, very relevant. The things he's talking about are are just as relevant today as they were then. Like, and that's that's was, yeah. As I said, that was eye opening for me uh, reading this. Kind of never having read anything Lenin said before. Mm-hmm. I think what you hit on a little bit there too with Lenin's attitude. I wonder, and this one he's writing, I think, in 1917, just before the October Revolution, or 1916. But I also think it's interesting, um, I also read What is to be Done, which is from 1901. The way he talks about it is, like you said, is that revolution is here, it is now. 
And I wonder if there isn't something to his, to him feeling it's, he's at the precipice of revolution that helped possibly usher it in instead of just people being like, yeah, eventually we might be able to get there and hopefully we can. Yeah. Instead of being like, yes, we can. Let's do it now. Yeah. Sort of thing. I wonder how much that had to play with that. The political sentiments felt very different. The zeitgeist yeah. at that time, it's so, it feels much more kinetic. And right now, I feel like we're very lethargic in the changes we want to make. We're very reactive instead of proactive. And, and we're easily, it's a, we're able to easily distance ourselves from the problems in this country because I think a lot of people really are pretty comfortable. We all have problems yeah. and things are crappy. Uh, but compared to people in the past, compared to people in other countries in this, in this planet, mm-hmm. we do have it very comfortably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at the working class's living standard, absolutely. But to to your other point that we're very reactive now, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, if you look at the political struggles that are going on, it's almost always there's this big attack against working people. Let's try to organize against it. Very rarely do you see anything of, of an offensive nature going on. Maybe like the fight for $15 an hour minimum wage. You could say that, but if you look at it based on inflation, that's not actually that. (laughs) You know, you can say that what we've done is lost ground over the last four decades, and what we're trying to do is make up for lost time for most of that 15. So I'm not sure you can even really call that an offensive move, which, which is a little bit sad. Yeah. Okay, I have a metaphor. I like trying to put things in metaphors because I don't think I have the precision of language just to describe it in, in, in clear terms, and the metaphor helps me. So I want to see if, if this metaphor for how Lenin talks about um, um, taking over the state and what you have to do after that is apt, and you guys can poke a million holes in it because I'm sure it'll deserve it. But the state is a bulldozer. It's a machine designed to, 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 to flatten, to stamp down. Um, you do need to take over that. We have to have revolution. You need to jump up there and knock the guy out of that bulldozer seat. You need to take over the controls. But if that's where you stop, you still just have a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. You, you are still bulldozing. That thing has a, a, a very, uh, focused um, purpose and it's going to continue to do that and I think what he gets at is that you then need to, to you pull the bulldozer over and start pulling it apart and you can make a shovel and a rake and a hoe out of that bulldozer the pieces in that thing and then you have a garden or a swing set I don't know whatever but you do need to and eventually it's not that you are like okay we don't need the wheel on this bulldozer anymore you're saying you, what you're saying is like okay we've we work together and we don't need to bulldoze anything anymore so let's use the pieces that we have in place and let's work together to to make this pretty garden or make a a fun playground i i love that analogy i think it's great in fact i would say unfortunately this this is kind of like an almost ironic problem is that i think that one of the problems with the soviet union was that they were still too close to a bulldozer Mm mm-hmm that they actually made a lot of changes, which were great changes. You know, we we mentioned the, some of those earlier, where they actually made major differences in the lives of working people that were huge improvements from what existed before. But one of the major downfalls of the society was I don't think it was changed enough. It did not put power in, directly in the hands of the working class. And yeah. so what you had was 
I don't know, a nicer bulldozer. The, the, the analogy kind of falls apart when I'm trying to use it. But you get you get my point is that it it was still too close to to the old uh, societal structure. You had a bunch more people on maybe on the bulldozer deciding where it got to go, but it was still a bulldozer. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's tough. But yeah, I I, I see what you're saying. Definitely. And and the reason I, th- I felt like Bulldozer worked was because he talked about the state as being that oppressive force. Like, it needed to, to, to flatten the playing field, and it needed to flat, flatten a lot. But so, and what he's saying, though, is that even at that time, people were, one of the most, like, counterproductive things for socialism weren't its op- antithetical opponents, but people who felt like they were very close to socialism, but wanted this watered-down version where we everything will be fine, we'll work together, and yeah. Well, yeah, you, you want to have the perfect solution, right? Mm. Like, you want to have all of the benefit without any of the drawback. You want to have all of the the produce without any of the work or whatever it is yeah and and i think that is where that sentiment comes from is is when lenin says look you need to change the state machine this isn't necessarily emphasized in the book but that's work and there's going to be problems along the way the the one one of the marxist professors at uw madison here nearby eric olin wright wrote a book on real-life utopias, is what it is, which are things happening in the real world today that are pieces of what could be a more equal society in the future. And one of the things he writes about is participatory budgeting, which is something that certain cities have done. I think it started in Latin America somewhere, where the citizenry actually gets together and has meetings to decide the city budget. Mm-hmm. And the first year that the first city tried it, it was awful. It didn't work. Everyone argued with each other. It was a huge disaster. And then they tried it again next year, but they made all these changes based on what they learned from the first time. And so that's one real-life example, but what he calls it in general, and I don't think this is Wright's term, I think he this is used other places, is a transition trough. Okay. Which is saying anytime you're moving from this format to a different format, you're going to lose some efficiency. There's going to be work involved in making the transition, and that is work that must be taken away from making an output. Mm-hmm. So your your output is reduced while you make the transition and and optimize the new system. And and that makes sense, absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why a socialist may fall into the trap of, well, we don't need to create a whole new state. Because that that's attractive, because then it's sort of like saying we don't need to go through a transition trough. Right. Unfortunately, I'm not that optimistic. I think probably we do need to go through a transition trough, because I think we need a major transition because the current structure is not built for an equitable society. Mm-hmm. I can't think of scarcely anything in our current society that wouldn't need at least some fundamental change. Like the, I think the closest thing to hit it is maybe public education might be the closest thing. Or I should say the thing that would need the least amount of change if all of a sudden we had a revolution tomorrow. But I think even there, 
there's plenty of room to change. And I oh man, yeah, we can have a whole episode. Yeah, on that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like as far as how the institutions set up, I don't know. Maybe you'll very much disagree with me with your background in education. But I think at least as far as it's set up, it doesn't need as much structural change. Yeah, maybe like, not. I mean, the hard part is, yeah, you're comparing against like other capitalist organizations which just might need more change but i think it's it's to me the major point is lots of things including education including i mean it, to say that education needs less change than anything else to me really drives home the point everything needs massive change <laughs> yeah. because i still think even education needs massive change yeah and i i think that's i think that's part of the problem with we're trying to sell socialism to people is that it isn't uh, necessarily, hey, the, this is what you do, this makes everything perfect. It is, so here's how we start, and things will get a lot better. Till we get to that point, it might be a little difficult for a while. And that's okay. People want you to have everything figured out and, and use that as a, as a, a counter-argument to socialism. And, and you... Capitalism doesn't have everything figured out. Uh, with uh, the new Google self-driving cars, they didn't need to be perfect for us to start to adopt them. They just needed to be uh, have a lower error rate than humans. Mm-hmm. And and it, they hit that point. It took them a long time. But, like, nothing's going to be perfect. It does not mean that because it, not, it is not perfect when you are conceiving it that is not worthwhile down the road and that but it is an easy argument to take for the reasons you were talking about red because not only is it more attractive to to think like oh we don't have to go through with that but also you it's just easier to dismiss it you know another thought occurs to me that as marketing gets more advanced i believe and maybe i'm wrong on this i'm not a marketing specialist but i think that there is a growing section of the population that is skeptical of an answer that sounds too good. And so I actually think that that's a good thing for socialists because, I mean, there's lots of points where we say, this is the guiding principle. It might end up looking like this. It might end up looking completely different. We're not sure, but this this is the thing we believe in. This is the thing. This is the basic idea we want to change, but there's probably hundreds or thousands of different structures this could take. I think that that answer sounds so much more honest than a simplistic-sounding answer. And that people who are faced with more and more sophisticated marketing that we see today will appreciate the honesty of that answer. Mm-hmm. Which may be a benefit for socialists if they're, if they're able to articulate their views in that way. It makes it feel like less of a mythology like you can weave wonderful tales of of great outcomes with your ideology um but as lenin talks about in the same revolution uh marx came from this from a very scientific perspective and he he was looking at things historically how what we can learn from the past that influences what we think will happen in the future but there's no guarantee and when things change and they're not what we expect all we can do is learn from the the mistakes of the past or the trials of the past you can learn from successes as well uh and and work from there and work together but we definitely see marx was able to point out a problem in society of and define it and say we need here's a way to change it 
but he definitely wasn't going to be someone who, and Lennon speaks to this too, um, he was not uh, someone weaving a utopic idea, uh, a mythology. Uh, he really wanted to stay grounded in, in what happened and what could happen, not what is going to happen. The beauty of what for certain is in our future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because, yeah, and folks that are listening that may not be as familiar with Marx's writing, I think what speaks to or what highlights Thad's point is Marx, if you sit down and read what he wrote, it's about why capitalism fails to deliver on its promise. It's a critique of capitalism. That's Marx's major contribution. Anyone that thinks that Marx's major contribution was writing out the blueprints for a socialist society, well, I'm sorry to say that's not really what Marx did. He had to first define the problem, and that that's what he spent his life doing, was saying exactly how does capitalism work, and why, in fact, does it fail to provide a free society for the vast majority of people. And, and yeah, like you said, it's it's a scientific way to think about it, which is a great place to start. And I think that everything we've we've mentioned this episode of of Marx and Lenin looking at the current state structure and saying ah this is a machine designed to promote a ruling class a capitalist ruling class and and oppress a working class for them to look at that and say we need a machine that's designed to do something entirely different that's the takeaway that's that's the point of state and revolution that if if there's anything to gain from it by reading it today that's that's number 1 This episode is part of the Marxism Today podcast series. Marxism Today is recorded, mixed, edited, produced, and maintained by Tony Schmidt and Red Wagner. It is distributed freely and licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. To find out more about the Marxism Today podcast, visit our website at marxismtodaypodcast.wordpress.com, where you can find archives of all of our episodes available for download. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.